From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this afternoon with the whole crew. Shane Jensen is here, fresh off a teaching. No, he's not teaching anymore. We're just grading and finishing up the semester. He's he's all fresh from not teaching. Adi Weiner is here, maybe not so fresh from Israel. He's back back in the States now. And Eric Bradlow tuning up to start traveling for the first time in some year plus. Looking forward to that. Got the whole crew in here. We're going to be here for two hours. We do it every week. We've got our normal pandemic schedule, which is first quarter COVID-19, couple quarters of open mic, open sport, open line, and then wrapping up with some interviews. Got two interviews at the end of the end of the show. Going to talk to Jeff Cedar about horse racing, given the doping news. We thought Jeff would be a good person here. And our old friend, Neil Payne, for all things sports, get into a little conversation with Neil. Guys, first quarter, COVID-19, always interested. What has caught your eye in the world of coronavirus? Well, I'm going to jump in and say the big news, of course, is that 12 to 15-year-olds are now eligible for vaccination. But Eric, Eric is enthusiastically pumping his well, fist. Well, my 15-year-old got a shot. My 15-year-old, we went today. Got oh, it today. Awesome. Uh, but is. one of the things that is touted about it is that it's somehow going to be the key to ending the pandemic. That's the thing I suppose I dispute. Um, I think it's a great thing. I think that kids who are 12 to 15 should get it. Um, uh, if, I, if I had a 15 That's going to get us from less than 50% vaccinated up to like 80% vaccinated or something like that? No, I, don't I think, think, I think the no. part that Adi's talking about, this is the dispute, right, is about how much are the, the spreaders. And there's been articles recently that suggest this age group, because of the amount of sports they play, they are going to school, that this is a very heavy, even though they're not affected dramatically by the disease, they're one of the big spreading populations of the disease. That's the at least argument. So Adi, why is that not a true argument? Because that, well, that is the that's argument. That's true, but thing is there's we could get there without the 12 to 15 year olds if we were better at getting the adults to do it i know but you as we've talked about for so, a couple of weeks you can require 12 to 15 year olds to get it if they want to go to school yeah that's well that that's going to be very difficult and and i guess the reason for making that difficult is that it's still emergency use use or authorization that's true and that would be a very difficult sell on parents to force them to do it when if the FDA can't get their act together and say, no, this is approved, um, it's hard to make someone do something that's emergency use, particularly when we don't need it if we could get more adults to do it. So we had I had, I had a, a contractor come by to give me an estimate this morning and I said, been vaccinated. And he's like, nah. I'm like, why? And yet there's a huge fraction of the adult population that just doesn't want to do it. And we can speculate why. At some point, we have to accept that and start fighting the battle. And that's really where the dialogue has shifted. And so we know at this point, we know that we've got these reluctant vaxxers out there. And so give them stuff. In Israel, they gave them cholent, which is a, a religious food you eat on, on the, it, that it's like a stew. At the baseball game, they were giving two tickets to the game. Give them beer. Give them a hundred dollars. Oh, you know they did that, right? That's <laughs> yeah, a no. That. No, no. The state, the state of uh, Maryland was doing that. You get a shot. You get a beer. Um, they just did it. They had a big. There was a big uh, event uh, or sh- uh, showcase of it today on CNN, where a guy in uh, that runs a big brewery in Erie, Pennsylvania, signed up, got more people to get shots this last week 
by giving it was at a brewery and giving away beer than the entire city did at all of their pop up <laughs> locations. Yeah, they're giving away bonds. They're giving a hundred dollar bond because actually this to me. Let me let me be a marketing professor for a second. We talk about societal welfare and customer lifetime value all the time. So the cost of someone getting COVID and getting sick is extraordinarily high to society if it happens. I understand it's a rareish event, but if it happens, you should pay people to get the vaccine. There's an easy economic argument to be made of paying people, Adi, whether it's in beer, whether it's in bonds. There could be a number much larger than the $100 bond they're giving out that would make economic sense. I was about to ask. I don't think we have the grounds to speculate on this, but I'm curious. What would be the upper limit of what a municipality, state, federal government should be willing to pay for this? I'm, the first number that comes to my mind, but I'm totally making it up. I'd pay a number between $500 and $1,000 a person. Mm-hmm. And what's the basis of that, Eric? Just talk us through your logic a little bit. Well, so I'm just thinking about the, the cost of, let's say, hospitalization due to COVID. Let's imagine that number... Well, if you're on a ventilator, it's extraordinarily high. But let's even imagine it's twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars for hospitalization due to COVID. Uh, I'm going to disagree. It, that's just the funny money that they charge. It's not the raw cost to the actual hospital. No, no. But so now, all right. So now you want to add something on to what I'm saying, which is now the hospital is going to strike some deal with the government to charge at base cost as opposed to whatever yeah. their normal. I was treating it at, at normal cost, Adi, with a certain amount of time in the hospital. But even if you want to say it's ten thousand dollars, maybe in cost or fifteen thousand dollars in cost. At a 1% rate or something like that, you get into the hundreds of dollars fairly easily. There could be long-term effects. I think 500 to $1,000 could very well be a number that lots of states could live with. And remember, you're not paying everybody this. This is what we call price discrimination. Some people have already gotten it on their own. You're not getting a check, Kate, and I'm not either because I already got it. Is it well, well, I mean, the other, the other theory I've, the, the other here theory that I've heard or the other plan that like at least has been proposed in some circles is you actually attach it to a stimulus package. So you, you know, if, if, if that would be in the 500,000, you know, $1,500 range. And you basically essentially give people in order to get vaccinated, you, you get another stimulus check. The people who got vaccinated already would also get that stimulus check, presumably in this plan, or else there'd be a lot of pushback. We prove that. But that would be that would be are the we, plan. But I, I feel we, like it, it's got to be that amount just to convince people, right? I mean, does the beer really work? Were, were those people actually reluctant vaxxers? Or they're like, wait, no, oh, hold on a sec. It comes with a $5 beer. Yes. I'm convinced now. Shane, as Eric said, they literally gave way more than this beer thing in Buffalo than the entire Erie. Which County. which speaks which speaks to the through the organization and promotional activities of that vaccination event. I don't think it's that. You- if they if they if they done something like that, well, okay, then if they if they done something like that and gave out two beers, would they got it in twice as many? Like well, we have no. to understand, they're right. I mean, they're, they're Shane, okay, fine. But Shane, let's take, let's just play it out. Cause I think Eric's got us pointing in a good direction with this, with this marketing idea. You would, you wouldn't start off with the highest value giveaways. You would start off with just a little inducement, like a beer and you collect anybody that'll give you the, on that. And then you go a little more expensive to collect the next tranche and you got yeah. to ooch up there. And of and course, because there's uh, and, but you, you, you have to do this slowly enough that people don't realize you're doing that or else oh, why would right. I just wait? Right. Jane, I was right. just about to say, we study this in marketing all the time. 
We know people are forward-looking, and so they're going to form expectations. You know, it's the classic thing. Do I get the 70-inch TV today at $5,000, or do I know for a fact in six months that same large 4K TV will be $2,000? And so this is the classic Bellman equation. Do I get the utility today, or do I wait and pay a lower price for it? So you're right. We know a lot about pulsing, which means you have to confuse people. You can't say, well, we're going to raise it $10 every week, because then people can do the math easily. You have to add some randomness to this. So there's so much known about how to incentivize people and not make it such a predictable pattern that people can do the forecast easily. And the crucial, <laughs> crucial factor here is you pull the plug once you're at a certain level when you don't need it anymore. I mean, just a baseline. Israel's down to nothing. We basically had uh, a dozen cases a day, two dozen cases a day. It's down. It's, so Adi wants to use so the 3 o'clock in the morning HSN form of marketing. Oh, only 50 left. If you're not one of the yeah. next 50, yeah. this is known. This is a standard tactic. Right, so just a bad idea, but this is, you're not winning a Nobel Prize for this, Adi. This right, has been so, published. Right, but, but my point is that it, we, what we don't know is what fraction of the people need to be vaccinated. So I can tell you Israel's numbers are 80% of adults, and that's where they are, 65% of the population, 60, 65, because they got nobody 16 and under. They don't they haven't approved that and they're down to nothing. So that's a kind of like a minimal. We're at what, 50 percent of adults. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about let's talk about where we a are. Over 50. We're at 58 percent of the adult population has at least one at, shot. If with one shot, at least if you look at the trend on cases, it's pretty stark. I mean, if you look at it, guys, we're off of a peak of, you know, 300,000 a day. And we're down now in the last week, we've dipped below maybe maybe 10 days, we've dipped below 50,000. We're probably down around 20,000 a day. And it's been, but for a little bit of a bump about a month ago, which was probably the impact of these variants working against the vaccination, it has been a steep decline. And if it continues anything like we've seen for the last, I don't know, three weeks, we're going to be down in four-digit territory pretty soon? I think even less. At least the, the, what I heard, if you ask us what caught our eye, they've suggested even that the steep decline hasn't even happened yet in the U.S., and it's coming, and it's coming very soon. And okay. so they, the numbers I heard is that your herd immunity might be 75 80%, but they think, given model that Adi was saying at Israel, once we hit about 60%, the number is going to go down much faster than it's been going down even the last three or four weeks, which has been encouraging. Well, you know, they talk about how how much demand for these shots has slacked and it, and it has and it's down a bit, but it, I mean, it's down a bunch, but it's still two million a day. Yeah, so we're still we're still making good inroads. It's just that the, the derivative. So, so in this in this promotion scheme, we should calculate that then really what you're looking at is what is the gain for I, I guess you're trying to just get people if, if this is going to happen in four weeks anyway. What you're trying to do with these beers and everything like that is to have it happen in one or two weeks instead of four weeks. And so no. that's really the kind of cost you have to calculate, right? I also think there's a lot of people who just are not going to vaccinate Correct. unless you like put it right in front of their face or give them the reason to drive down. I mean, so this contract is where he's just like, I don't really care. Um, I don't think I think he did. He'd do it if you gave him a beer and he walked right past it. But I go drive down to the vaccination it. center. Probably not. So you like the idea of what they're thinking. This has also caught my eye. You like the idea of what they're planning in New York City, which is um, they're going to have it at every subway station. They're going to have it at the um, Circle Line, the boat tour. Um, right. And Johnson & Johnson, one shot and you're done. No pre-registration. They're going to have it at the Statue of Liberty Ferry. Mm-hmm. They're going to have it at the ball games. 
Right. Um, I was just in New York at a baseball game. I walked past the Museum of Natural History. They would have given me a shot right there if I didn't have oh, yeah. one. So if you have the one-shot Johnson & Johnson version just at, I don't want to literally say every street corner, but like at subways, at big events, et cetera, people will get it. There'll be, you'll make an inroad into that last 20 to 25%. So Shane, Shane's Apparently in Montana, they're, they're hitting truck drivers going across the border. You cross the border from Canada to get a shot at the border. Great. Well, it's, they're I not even restricting it to Americans. So, but Shane, is, Shane makes an interesting point, and that is, if 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 everyone understood these models and believed them, then you might feel less urgency about getting this out more because we're kind of on the way to a pretty safe number to begin with. Unless you didn't think that was going to be low enough. enough, unless you really want it down to dozens instead of thousands, or unless you believe, Cade, that while things will go down that even a number above the de minimis amount that Adi's talked about in Israel, let's say we even get it down to eight to 10,000 a day. Is that enough for six months from now for there to be a significant variant? Yeah. So that's the thing that w- yeah. concerns me the most. And by the way, that's the part that I'm encouraged about the 12 to 15 year olds is that giving them the vaccine makes it less likely that there'll be an emerging variant in six to eight months, which would require potentially, you know, we might see things start to rise again for a while. Right. Right. All right. So, Adi, any any further reflections on your time in Israel now that you're back and you've got a little distance from it? You had the experience of traveling internationally. You traveled to one of the most successful countries, maybe the most successful country so far. And eradicate is too strong a word, but to bring it under control. And now you've had a little bit of time to reflect. Any any takeaways? Yeah. I mean, what the great what the nicest thing about Israel coming home is uh I don't feel less safe here than I did there. I'm vaccinated. Mostly everybody I know is vaccinated. And in Israel was the same thing. But in Israel, people are like letting their guard down. And it's a pleasure. So you, there's music. There's venues that are performing. Theaters filling up. Restaurants. People aren't wearing masks in the street. Yeah, they're wearing masks in crowded malls and, and stores. That's still the mandate. You have to. But there's a sense that this is behind them. I'm here in America and I, I walked into a, to a, into a store, a restaurant, and a friend of mine I hadn't seen in forever stood like 30 feet away from me. And I said, oh, you must, are, you, are you not vaccinated? Of course I'm vaccinated. What are you doing 30 feet away from me? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, well, uh, you know, I'm, this is what I'm supposed to do, right? We got to move a little past that. That's where I feel like, and that was the big difference here. Uh, that that might be, but a, a bit of an individual experience, though, because I, I I feel like walking around Center City, Philadelphia. I, I, I what you just described as Israel is kind of like moving past it. I, I source. We don't have, you know, the CDC sort of said that if you're vaccinated, you don't have to anymore, and far fewer are wearing masks outdoors, going from place to place. So. I kind, I well, kind of feel I like maybe it's actually happening. They, 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 well, it depends on where you are. So at Brookline, where my son lives in the suburb of Boston, um, they did not, they, they officially overruled the CDC and said, you still have to wear masks outdoors. Right. Um, what's the oh, rule in Philadelphia? Okay. I, I don't even know. What it, but, I haven't been to Philadelphia. I, well, I mean, there, there, I mean, there's no overruling of the CDC recommendations. So I believe that the current <laughs> rule is that you do are no longer you know, kind oh, of, no, I mean, you're never required, you, but you're no longer yeah, necessarily not. suggested to wear masks outdoors. Well, no, see, I mean, uh, the, the, no, the CDC is a recommendation. The city of Philadelphia yeah. could absolutely require masks if they want. Could, to but Brooklyn. currently does not. I think Audie was asking what's currently going on. I don't think they currently do, right? 
So what happened, most important, let's, let's, I don't know to what extent it was required, but it was definitely the norm for a long time and kind of a surprisingly strong and long-lasting norm in Philadelphia to wear mask outside. More substantively on the Philadelphia front, just today, guys, just today, this is going to affect our education. It was announced that the restrictions on the gathering would be relaxed. And so I think beginning June 11, no restrictions on gathering um, at home anyway, and I believe it's to, for, for school as well. And so finally, after months, Philadelphia is showing some relaxing. But I think, Adi, uh, but I think, uh, Cade, you brought up an interesting date. Notice that's four weeks from now. So June 11th. So the interesting thing about that is that gives us the four weeks that Adi was talking about where we might be at a much lower level. So I feel I'm just saying I'm I'm going to feel comfortable, but I like that date as opposed to if someone said today. I see. OK. OK. Interesting. Well, um, it's optimism for the fall, too, because our constraint, everyone, you know, students are going to be required to be vaccinated uh, we're ready to go in some sense, but the city wouldn't let us gather a classroom full. And so as of today, it looks like if everything holds, we will be able to have full classrooms, which is encouraging on the, on at least the, the, the graduate level education, um, in Philadelphia guys, what else around the world of coronavirus, anything before we move along to other topics? Well, there was a very interesting, uh, na- uh science article with a very long list of, uh, prominent, uh, statisticians, epidemiologists, biologists from Johns Hopkins, from, from uh, Harvard, et cetera, et cetera, talking about they had gathered data, uh, I think, from, from social media. Um, and the, and they're basically trying to understand how schools served as a vehicle for transmission. And in particular, um, what measures were used and how well did those work? Obviously, it's entirely observational. And they did whatever they could to try. And, and this is self-participation, self-report. Um, but what was fascinating about it, first of all, the maps were gorgeous because you could really see how so much of the country just stayed open, the schools open, and so much of the country did not, and, and kind of how that lined up. Uh, mm-hmm. So California just basically kept their, their schools closed, while, um, while the, most of the middle of the country, what you might call the red states, were pretty much wide open the whole time. Um, so what was fascinating about it is that, that, that they didn't seem to find that many of the measures that are used of our only marginal um, utility. But what really did seem to have an impact was masking the teachers. Really? Yeah, masking the teachers. Um, part-time schools had less transmission than full-time schools. Um, ending extracurricular, outside extracurricular activities, that also seemed to have a, a measurable impact. But lots of things that were done inside the school, all the washing that they do in the major separations, didn't seem to have much impact at all. In other words, the students themselves were not the vectors. It was the students to the adults um, was seemed to be, and it's hard to know because all this is highly speculative. It's crappy data, um, right. but the, actually they're making the data available. So was that a new revelation? I, I thought that was the major concern. It was not, I mean, yes, students transition to students, but the, I'll call it the non-asymptomatic cases, the hospitalizations, et cetera, were students to teachers and then teachers spreading it to others. Isn't that what had always been thought? Or is that, that what you always thought? But there, I forgot the key, the other key finding. Symptoms checks were actually quite valuable. In other really? words, we spent so much that actually keeping kids out of school when they had symptoms was a really good and worthwhile thing to do. It turns out, yeah, there are a lot of asymptomatic cases, but there are also symptomatic ones. And, and, that, and that those, I think, probably are the ones that spread more. Um, and that actually symptoms check, symptoms checking, um, 
uh, teacher masking, more, more important than student masking, and extracurricular activities were the ones that were prominently uh, different from uh, relative risk, different from okay, one. So, Adi, say more about extracurricular activities, because one of the drums that we've really beaten for the last 12 months is that outdoor activities are practically completely safe. Oh, these are. So I don't want to confuse outdoors. extracurriculars with outdoors. So what, what is included in Oh, that? everything, uh, music, drama, um, you okay. know, anything could be anywhere. I don't We're, think also well, much be, more mixing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. There was another, uh, a big article published and maybe yesterday in nature communication comparing models. So this is the kind of thing we've can, been doing informally since the beginning of this thing and have known that eventually somebody would do it more formally. And it's a little dense for us to drop into right now, but hopefully we'll have a conversation about it sometime in the next couple of weeks because these folks are literally going out and saying, okay, how'd the models do? Those guys, the, the ones that tried to forecast the world and share data and we can actually do a proper study on, we can see not just who did best among them, but where were the strengths and weaknesses of the field in general? And so it's a fun, it's a fun deep dive now that we've got a year's worth of data on how the modeling efforts went. All right, guys, that is it for coronavirus for this week. We will come back again and talk about it more next time, but we've got some more sports in front of us. We've got one quarter down, three quarters to go. Come back and join. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You guys can join the conversation. We wish you would. Jump in on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. It's a great way to reach out to us, suggest topics, raise questions, make fun of us, whatever you got. We'd love to hear from you, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. You can also send us an email. It's our mailbag. We periodically dip into that to take questions and observations from you guys. We always love hearing from you. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Edu for mailbag via email. Rolling into the second quarter now, open sports, open lines, open mic. Gentlemen, curious around the world of sports, what has caught your eye? I think things are breaking. I, I, I tend to be pessimistic about them, but and I have been all season, but I think things are starting to break the Sixers' way. Yeah. Um, you know, they look like they're going to lock in the one seed. I think they are up three games in the loss column with four to play, and I think they win the tiebreakers. So they're very likely to be the one seed. Now, why does that matter? Because I think the two actual best teams in the Eastern Conference are the two and the three, which are the Nets and the Bucks. which means if you want, they're in the other part of the draw, which means right. the Sixers only have to play one of them. The 4-5 matchup now, which potentially is who this big six will play in the second round, is not the mighty powerhouse of, old, of yore. It's the Hawks and the Knicks. And what? so – what? You're telling me the Knicks are number four seed in the East? Are you kidding me? Uh, I'm telling you the Knicks are the number four seed in the East. How did they're, that they're trying to hold what a world, huh? It's going to be the Knicks or the Hawks, by the way. Um, and, you know, even the 7-8 matchup, you know, so the Knicks might play the, I don't know, they play like the Wizards or someone like that. I mean, I mean, the Sixers, I mean. I mean, the Sixers have a dream matchup. I mean, a lot of people believe, I don't want to say guaranteed, but they have a very high odds of making the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, right. now, whether they beat the Nets or the Bucks, who are likely to be sitting there, I don't know. But you're only playing one of the two. 
And your first two rounds seem to be, matter of fact, a lot of people would rather play them than the Celtics, who are going to be in the sixth spot, possibly. Um, the six and sevens looking tougher than the four and the five. So everything seems to be breaking the Sixers' way right now. So, Eric, how, how strongly do you read into the seed? So we've got a this, – is this an abbreviated season? It feels shorter. Too. It is. They're playing 72 games. Okay, so it's a little bit abbreviated. They've got a two- or three-game lead in the East over those second- and third seeds. What's your inference on how good they are? I mean, could anything kind of happen to give that kind of two- or three-game lead? Could it have broken the other way? Or do you think they're actually the stronger of the teams here after watching them for the season? Well, remember, the Nets have had tremendous injury issues. Kevin Durant was out for a very long time. James Harden is still out and has been out for, you know, I don't know, 30-something games. Kyrie Irving has been out for a set of games. So we haven't really seen, and maybe we won't see it this year, we have not seen a healthy, full-strength Nets team pretty much all season. And I think when they are playing at full strength, I forget if they won 14 out of 15, but it was something like that when Harden, Durant, and Irving actually all played together. So Mm -hmm. I think if you have a healthy Nets team against a healthy Sixers team, the Sixers can't be the favorite. Well, so, but that, that's a big conditional and I appreciate you're laying it out that way, but if you do say, well, I mean, we haven't seen them full strength yet. And if you do lay out the playoffs, the way you've laid out the playoffs, the Sixers start looking pretty good. And if you jump over at 538, I don't know what the 538 guys would say. We, we should have asked Neil when we talked to him, but it kind of feels to me like basketball is, is one of their loves. Maybe Adam Silver really likes modeling basketball, but they're ELO and their Nate playoff Silver. stuff. I think you said Adam Silver. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure Adam Silver does love the NBA. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he's into it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's probably, he it probably is his top sport. Okay. So, no, so I think it's, Nate, I think it's baseball. Nate. I mean, uh, Adam Silver's top sport. <laughs> okay. So Nate models. Yeah, you're right. He, he, he started out as a baseball guy, but he loves these basketball models. And short of it, I'm trying to get to is that they have the Sixers as the favorite to win the whole thing. Now I think the reason that is, is because the East is weaker than the West. I think less competitive in some way, but if you look at their chances, the chance of winning the finals, 538 currently has the Sixers at 25%, which is a healthy margin above number two and three, which are the Clippers and Jazz out of the West. I think they haven't been listening to Eric. Don't you know you can't count on a team whose who's best guy is a center? Come on. <laughs> I, I stand by that statement. And even, again, let's even just think of the logic of it. So you're telling me if the final four teams, and I'll, I'll just make up for it, pick Utah or Phoenix, whichever one you like, Take the Clippers or Lakers, pick whichever one you like. And now all of a sudden, so 25% to win. I just want to be clear, to win the whole thing or to win the East? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, here's the problem. You're telling me you think if there's four teams left, they're better than 25%? Because if not, then you can't be 25% because they don't have a 100% chance to make the final four. So that number seems very large to me just on that premise itself. Well, I mean, they could be, I mean, I agree that, you know, that they certainly don't have a equal chance against a Western team. But if, if, if you kind of believe that the Sixers were the dominant team in the East, they would have perhaps a greater than 50% chance. It's, yeah, it's not actually, yeah, it's not actually where the betting comes so, Yeah, it's not actually making the finals. I mean, then that. Probably is what's going into that. Yeah, it's not where the betting odds are. Um, it's interesting right now that, uh, I mean, Shane was, it's interesting how Cade brought up 538 because 
I put in the rundown and Matt's put in our thing. The Nets are the betting favorite by far. And so what's interesting is there's obviously a difference between, let's call it the power index or some measure of strength and what the fans think. I guess the fans believe that, you know, the Nets will be healthy by the time it really matters before they actually have to beat somebody good. Well, you know, if you, I, it'd be good to talk to the modelers about this because they're, the 538's full strength rating for the Nets is only 1716. It's on an ELO scale, if you remember. And that's right in there with the Sixers at 1719. And they put the Clippers a little bit above, Jazz a little bit above. But essentially, those four guys, those four teams, according to their full strength ratings, are very comparable. Now, that's what I do remember about what I do remember about that's their playoff numbers. Remember, they had these. They did this clever thing with their basketball model, which was playoff basketball is different than regular season basketball. And we're going to rate teams differently for their ability to perform in the playoffs. And what I'm giving you is their playoff full strength rating. And they have the Sixers right at the nets and just a tad above them, actually. I'll stand by my statement. When your best players, your center, you're going to have trouble. So I still do not believe in the key moments of the big games The Sixers, I do not think they'll be able to close out close games against ball-laden teams. So think about the Nets just as an example quickly. They have three guys who you'd be all thrilled about to take the final shot and can take the ball from half court up. Durant, Harden, Irving. You'd be fine with any of the three of them taking the winning shot. So not only do they have their best players, not only not their center, but three guys that can handle the ball, and you have three to choose from at the end of the game. Yeah. Eric, I've been meaning to ask you about the Knicks. Do you believe that they is, – is this season kind of evidence that they are kind of a resurgent team, or is this just kind of a one-off, random kind of good fortune on their part? Well, so two things I would say about the Knicks. One is um, Julius Randle and Brandon Ingram are actually really good players. Now, they're not top 10 players in the NBA, but they're in that next tier. So that's number one. Number two, the, e- the East is very weak. Remember, the Celtics are having a really off year. The Nets have been injured. So that's helping the Knicks get to the four or five. Third, they have, in my view, and and the data supports this, the best defensive coach in the NBA. Tom Thibodeau is a tremendous coach. And he has that Knicks team playing really hard. Last time I checked, they were in the top three in the NBA in defensive efficiency rating. And so um, they don't have a lot of big name offensive guys, but they're, they're playing good defense. And so, you know, this is gets to my point, Shane. I think it's like it's almost like you're running an ordinal regression. Can you get to be a good playoff team? I didn't say great. A four or five team by being a very good defensive team with not a lot of stars for playing smart basketball. Don't turn it over. Really? Yes. The, how the Knicks are going to get to that next level? That, that, that's, well, that's, that's a totally different ball game. Yeah, though the calculus is for a big market team like New York, the calculus is different because the way you get to that next level is you just convince a bunch of superstars to demand trades or, or to sign there, right? And so if the Knicks can get to that kind of contender level – they, you know, they, 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 they of all teams should have, be able to make at least through the free Knicks agency are at the, the jump. contender level where a big superstar could imagine going there and them going from four or five in the east to one or two in the east. I completely agree with that. But isn't it more than just the city, not not to, you know, demote New York in any way, but also the organizational structure that attracts the talent? Does the Knicks have that? Do they have no. and no? Is that so true, though? Is that true? I mean, do, how how much do players care? That's a great question, but I. I would put that pretty far down the list compared to competitiveness of the team and the regional 
the location of the place. Well, I think Adi's also pointing out, like, do they trust the uh, organization to make the right basketball moves to get them to the top? And so, you know, that, that's the question. I'm skeptical. No, and, 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 and I think certainly Dolan, I mean, I, I don't think there's much trust out there for their ownership to kind of long term continue to be competent. But, you know, all they need is to put together a few seasons where you get a, a decent GM and you, they seem to have a really good coach. That could present, but you know, because players don't have to think for you know five or ten years from now how the franchise is going to do. They just have to think over the next couple of seasons. So one of the things that, that's really been uh, bugging me is a question. I hope you can answer all of you. Uh, speaking of owner leadership changes, the Sixers. What makes the Sixers this year so good compared to previous years? Obviously, they changed the the, the leadership. Anything else, or is that just it? Well, the leadership at two levels, both the head coach and the president. And so um, I don't know. I'm sure we don't see all the stuff that's played out behind the scenes, but Eric has seen a lot play out on the court. I'm sure you've got a thought on it, Eric. Yeah. Well, I mean, their role players are playing better. And what do I mean by that? A guy that's very underappreciated, the Sixers, got a famous last name, but he's the other Curry, which is Seth Curry, is playing extraordinarily well. They obviously picked up George Hill. George Hill's a veteran guy who shoots over 40% uh, from three. And so now all of a sudden the Sixers bench is starting to look a little bit better. So again, I have no trouble with the Sixers team, except I do not trust the Sixers at the end of games. And Ben Simmons can't shoot the ball. So that's another problem you have. And so that's the problem. They have, they have like everyone's dysfunctional just a little bit, but the Knicks role, sorry, the Sixers, the Sixers role players have gotten a lot better. Hmm. Eric, I, I am curious about your assessment on Brett Brown now that he's gone. And he, he took a lot of criticism early. He, he kind of survived the process to some extent and then got canned here. Um, you're, you watch him closely. And, and, and so the pieces on the floor might be different. That's not the coach. That's more the front office. But what about the way they're deployed? What's your assessment now? You watch Brown a lot. He's been gone a year. Yep. What's your assessment? I think the Sixers are a more wide-open offensive team and less predictable. I think that's the big difference that I've seen, which was you knew how the Sixers were going to play in the past, which means – and the real problem, by the way, with the big man being your best player is that when everybody knows the ball is going to the big man, double, triple team – first of all, you pressure them to come up the court. So the time they cross half court, there's only 16 or 17 seconds left. Then they're going to have to rotate it. You double the big man, so now they have to rotate it three times to get it to the big man. So now Embiid gets it with five seconds left. He's got one option or one move to make. That was the Sixers in the past. Okay. Now they're mixing it up. They're mixing up who's bringing it up. They're mixing up where Embiid is. They actually realize that Embiid can play better, sometimes not in the post at the end of the game. Put this seven foot one guy who can really handle the ball at the top of the key and let him beat somebody off the dribble. So just the, <laughs> the variation in what they're doing is much greater. I thought Brett Brown became extraordinarily predictable by the end. Okay, got it. Super interesting. All right. Anything on the West before we go away? The Lakers, are are they going to avoid the play-in game? Have they managed to No, they're not. And by the way, the highest rated game in in this playoffs, there's no question what it is. And it's almost 70% right now to be. The Lakers are going to play the Warriors. (laughs) The Lakers at seven and the Warriors at eight. Now, the good news is the loser's not out. The loser is still the home team 
against the eight nine the nine ten winner. Okay. But the Lakers at seven and eight are going to play each other almost certainly in the first round with the Lakers having home court. If LeBron's healthy, I think the Lakers win. If not, I think the Warriors win that game. Then the Lakers are going to play the nine ten winner to try to make it uh, to the eighth seed in the playoffs. But then, how bad do you feel? For Phoenix and Utah, or especially let's, whichever one ends up playing the Lakers in the first round, you played all season to get the one or two seed, and now you're playing the Lakers in the first round? <laughs> it's a disaster for them. I feel really bad. Well, I, do you think a team, and we talk about it all the time, that teams in the NBA can sleepwalk through the regular season and save their players and then just turn it on in the playoffs? Do you think the Lakers are pushing that theory? I know it wasn't all designed. They've had injuries, but have they? Are they beyond the line? Are they gonna be able? What's your belief on how the Lakers will perform once the playoffs do hit? Because to the outsider, it looks to me like they've taken it too far this year. Yeah, I don't know that it's taken it too far. They, they didn't take it too far. LeBron was supposed to be back two weeks ago. He, you know, he played a few games, re-injured his ankle that he had already injured it. You know, when the guy fell on his ankle. No, I don't think the Lakers are going to be able to get all the way back to the top. I think this is the year where it's just going to be too much uh, because Anthony Davis is not consistently playing well, and they lost a bunch of role players, and Kuzma's not playing well. I don't like the Lakers this year at all. I think the Lakers to get out of the first – I don't even know if they're going to get out of the first round because I think Utah and Phoenix are more complete teams than them. That's my belief. I would take Utah or Phoenix right now with the health of the Lakers. I would take Utah or Phoenix – over the Lakers right now. So and is you, it fair, mean, basically a coin flip between those two, or do you have some thoughts on which of those two, if you were to predict? The only reason I like Phoenix a little bit better is because I like Chris Paul. And I like Chris Paul's playmaking. I like him a little bit better than I like Utah's choices at the end of games. Um, but they're a toss-up, too. I think they're very good. I think the West is wide open this year. But, again, I think the Clippers are still the most talented team in the West. But well, so Eric, let's, let's talk about the betting odds right now. Yeah. Um, these were – I don't know. I mean, these are some old odds. What, what, what odds did we get thrown up here? Or maybe I hope – was this preseason stuff? This must have been preseason stuff that's posted, so I'm not going to quote it because those numbers are – I don't know the live, the live odds. Maybe Maddie will throw them at us here shortly. Um, you're, you've, got, you've got a pretty strong end-of-game model in your head for what's going to matter in playoffs. Like Chris Paul, Chris, I mean, there's very few players you'd rather have with the ball late in the game than Chris Paul, probably. Um, the, it's, it's, uh, it's nice that we all, we, if we had our slogans, each of us had our own personal slogans, we know what the lines are. Shane's is going to be coin flips in the playoffs, especially. <laughs> he's flipping his, yeah, thumb, a little thumb flipping a coin. I'm not sure what Adi's Adi's would be some fancy Bayesian statistical term. <laughs> I don't know. Um, all right. Anything else in basketball, fellas? I, I'm just waiting for the I'm just waiting for the playoffs to start. I think it'll be a very, very interesting season. I think at the end of the day, though, it's it's going to be, except for the Lakers, I think it's going to be I, I would be shocked if one of the top if it weren't the top two or three teams. I don't think there's going to be any big upsets in the West, and I don't think there's going to be any big upsets in the East. I think the Sixers, um, Bucks, and Nets in the East, those are the two. Two of those three are in the finals, uh, or one of those three in the finals, two of those three. And I think in the West, I, for me, it's Utah, Phoenix, or the Clippers. I, I don't think there's anyone coming out of one of these low seeds. That said, I mean, I, I, okay, fine. They're not coming out of the low seeds. They almost never do in basketball. But that top tier you just described, the top three or so in the East, the top three or four in the West, you could see anybody winning it. 
And that we haven't said that about the NBA in a long time. I mean, like a real, like since the existence of this show and that's fun. I, I think it feels much more wide open than it has been. I mean, the Raptors surprised us a little bit a couple of years ago, but other than that, I mean, it's always one or two teams that you're certain are going to be in the finals. I, I any chance we, uh, any chance the finals are at, uh, are, are to full capacity audiences. Oh, well, if they play them in Texas, they will be. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think the Mavericks are making the finals. Uh, no, I don't think there's any chance they're full capacity audiences. No, I, I would say indoors and no, I would say not. No. All right, odds out of the West: Lakers plus two hundred, Jazz plus three twenty-five, Clips two forty. So Clips and Jazz. Your so sons, just, no, notice, Eric- by the way, this is the seven seed and the three seed in the West right now are ahead of the Jazz and the Suns, which are the one and two seed. Now, that's always interesting, right? Yeah. Well, you're, and your Suns, I think you should go out and get some money on the Suns, you and your Chris Paul love. Plus I, I like them at plus 650. Go get it. Go get it, Eric. All right, guys. <laughs> uh, what other sport right now? I noticed, uh, what did we notice? A little golf action, Eric. We had a fun, fun little uh, win by our favorite Irishman for the first time in 18 months this past weekend. Good warm up for the, for Kiowa. Yeah. What, what's interesting to me about Roy, the one thing that caught my eye is he's been playing horribly in my view. He hadn't won for 18 months, but also just, he had missed like five or six consecutive cuts. The worst worry McElroy is, is 15 in the world where he is now. Like that's the bad Roy McElroy yeah, is yeah, at 15 right, in right. the world. And people are like, Oh my God, he's slumping. Well, he's still 15 in the world. That's not so bad. And so um, I like the way he's playing now. I think that's, it's, it's interesting. The second majors coming up, and, you know, we always make this calculation, Adi, every year. How many players do you have to take in golf to bet against the field, whether it's 10, 11? I, it's got to be a large number right now because nobody's – I mean, Dustin Johnson had to pull out this week. He's injured. Bryson DeChambeau has not been playing well. Justin Thomas won a couple of weeks ago. Jordan Spieth hasn't played since, you know, for three or four weeks. I don't think there's anybody that's hot going into the PGA. And remember, the person that won the uh, Masters was Colin Morikawa. I don't even know if he's been seen on a golf course since the Masters. Yeah, he's been a little bit. He's, he's, I can tell you, this is to, to, to evidence your argument, he is ninth on the board right now, according to Vegas Insider. So even Morikara, who's been, who's been uh, completely vacant, is in the top 10 in terms of odds. He's plus 2,700. Let me just give you the rundown. Rory at the top now. That's, golf is a bit of a momentum sport. That's, that's one of these places where it's legitimate that, that you do have these kind of regime shifts and guys play strong sequentially. Rory's at the top at plus 1,000. John Rahm at plus 1,200. Still looking for his first major, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you are not mistaken. Skepticism about his ability to putt under pressure. Justin Thomas, he's always at the top of these boards, plus 1,200. Dustin Johnson, also at the top of these boards, plus 1,200. Jordan Spieth, who's been quiet the last couple weeks, but people felt like his game might have been coming around finally after years in the wilderness at plus 14. Uh, DeChambeau right there with him. DeChambeau, did y'all see the story on DeChambeau this past week? The tournament's in Charlotte. He's too... Two strokes oh, yeah. off the cut when he ends his round on Friday. So he gets on his plane and flies back home to Dallas. The cut line drops down to him. He makes the cut. And so he gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning, goes down to the airport, and flies back to Charlotte and over the weekend crawls back into ninth place. Yeah, shoots 68-68 on the weekend. That was I thought that was a fantastic story. But I like also his economics. He's like, even though he's obviously a wealthy man, he's like, do you know how much a private plane costs at 2 o'clock in the morning? He goes, 
Yeah, but he goes, he was thinking to himself, but yeah, but if I could get to the top 10, I'd probably pay for it. So that was the actual, that was his exact quote. So uh, it'll, the, the PGA, remember the PGA is a long time August tournament and they pulled it into this kind of slow spot in May to yep. fill a gap between the US Open and the Masters. And so it is going to get more attention. And it's fun to have, uh, it's fun to have these quick golf majors like but one even month by the odds another. you gave uh kate you get rory at the top at plus 1000 which puts him at about nine percent which means we know then by definition you're going to have to go a lot of golfers deep i don't know maybe six seven eight golfers deep at least yeah. maybe more to get yeah. to 50 yeah. percent um i take the field there's yeah. i mean i i don't i'm not believing in a bunch of those guys. I, I think spieth's chances are very low Rom, I'm not. A, these guys just haven't been playing that well, or even playing that often. So I, I, I'm taking the field over the top six or seven in whatever betting odds you have. Well, remember also that the PGA has the deepest field in golf majors, and one of the reasons we get a little bit more obscure champions. Oh, great point. PGA is that you just have more golfers playing, and it's not like some sports where the last 75 guys don't stand a chance. The last 75 guys actually sometimes win this thing, and so it's a good tournament to take the field. Um, by the way, uh, I'm seeing Will Zalatoris, remember, runner-up at the Masters, and also amateur student of our buddy Scott Fawcett. Scott was on here a month or so ago, and we keep on referring back to him because he had such a fun conversation with him. But Fawcett coached up some of these guys, including Zalatoris, and was watching as he did so well in Augusta a couple weeks ago. Zalatoris is sitting down there. He's probably looking at you know almost number 20 at plus 3,300. Adi. Yeah, you mentioned that the size of the field – increases the probability of the top six or seven winning is that reflected in the odds no no he said the decreases decreases is that actually reflected in the odds or or is it just an observation i mean it's an observation but i'm guessing it's in the odds it should be baked in there if you look at the top right yeah i'm I'm guessing that if you look at the odds at you know at going into any one of the other majors that they don't start at Plus a thousand. How's well, that? especially the Masters, like the Masters, which is the smallest, smallest field. field, which is typically yeah. ninety to ninety-five golfers. This one's fifty percent more. It's usually around one hundred and thirty, one hundred and forty golfers at the PGA. I'd say fifty percent more. Look, you can just do math. Even if those bottom fifty golfers have, you know, one tenth of one percent each, that's still five percent probability you're taking away from the top, which is not bupkis. Not trivial. Yeah. Not trivial. He's asking a good question. How astute is the market on that? I'm going to, I'm, I'm almost certain it'll be directionally correct. Whether it's perfectly calibrated is a, is a different question. Remember I'm a behavioral guy. The market's probably not perfectly right. There's got to be some edge in there somewhere. Um, what else fellas is, is Nadal been doing poorly? What's going on, on the tennis front, Eric? So Nadal, uh, won one tournament. Um, I think he won the, it was the Madrid open is the one he won. Um, he beats Verov in the finals, but he's not looking unbeatable on clay. Um, and oh no, sorry, Zverev won the Madrid Open. Nadal won the one that was before that. The thing that was impressive about Zverev in that Madrid Open is he beat Nadal, Theme, and Berrettini, which was these are three top ten players for you to beat three top. And also Nadal and Theme are thought of in my mind are the top two clay players in the world, and Zverev beat both of them. So that was impressive. Um, I think I think the person that said it the best, shocking to hear him say it, Novak Djokovic just said yesterday, he believes the change is coming and it's coming sooner than most people think. Of the Masters 1000 events, I think four out of the last five of them have not been won by the big three. And he said whether it's this month, six months, a year from now, his view is 
you know, enjoy the time of the big three because it's coming to an end much sooner than you think. That was him saying it. That, that, that's super interesting because it's something we've been speculating. We have been speculating about that for years. Remind us, Eric, I have to hear this about six more times before I have it. How big a deal is the Masters 1000s? I know this is the point system, but after we come off the, after we come off the Grand Slam tournaments, that's four. Yeah, so Masters it's, yeah, so it's very the math's very simple. The ma- they they could call the Grand Slams if you'd like the Masters two thousand because those are worth two thousand points each. Okay, and then there's I think there's eight Masters one thousands. Those are worth a thousand points each. Then they have what they call the ATP five hundreds. Those are worth five hundred points each. So you can basically imagine a pyramid where things go two to the power. And so there's two thousand point tournaments, one thousand five hundred, etc. So winning a Masters one thousand is quite an accomplishment. Like there are great players that you've heard of that have never won a Masters one thousand event. Because let's be clear. In normal years without injuries, all the big three, they're playing all, they're all playing the Masters 1000. In fact, all the top 50 players in the world are all going to be at a Masters 1000 event. They're not going to miss that event. So I think there was a number, I, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating, but I was close. At one point, like 45 of 49 Masters 1000 events were won by the big three. Forget the majors. Oh, Even the Masters 1000 events were all being won by the big three. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, one more before we get to the break. What Hockey is wrapped up. We're, we're moving into hockey playoffs now. I think between now and the next show that we do, we're going to be into the first round. And they had this funny kind of pod system. They, they restructured the whole league this, this, this season in order to, to better manage COVID. It sounds like they did it. We haven't had as many. We, they just postponed the playoffs a few days because of Vancouver had some trouble. But what, we'll talk more about it next week, but what do we know about the NHL going into the playoffs? And for that, we go to our resident Canadian and hockey expert. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess the one thing I'll point out now, because things aren't completely settled in terms of the matchups, but the one matchup that's looking kind of exciting that I, you know, and, and speaks directly to this kind of pod system is that one of the first round matchups looks like it's going to be Toronto against Montreal. And, hey. I, you know, as a hockey historian goes, that's a, Usually that would have to be somewhere, you know, you'd have to have that in the Stanley Cups or something like the Stanley Cup finals to have that happen typically. But because mm-hmm. all the Canadian teams are kind of in their own little bracket, you know, they're they're in one of their own little pods together. You can get some interesting historical matchups. And certainly I think in the, as a first round one, that's the one that really stands out to me. It's not remind, it's remind not us guaranteed. Yeah. Yet. Okay. Things still have to shake out, but. So, so two, two questions coming out of that, Shane. One, remind us what the structure of the playoffs is. How many pods are there? And then how are they, are they going to play something within pod before they go to between pods? Are they straight away between pods? What's going on? So it, it's within pod right up until the final four. I see. So, so, it, 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 so there's, there's four, the four, there's four kind of divisions and things have been moved around with. They're not the usual divisions. There's four divisions, yeah. essentially a Canadian one or uh, Northern one. There's an East one, South one and West one. So I mean, they've been way. playing entirely within those divisions right. for the regular so season. And they will continue to put, they'll, they'll play until there's essentially a champion within each of those pods. Okay. And so then there's like, the final four. It's like the, it's like the original version of the NCAA tournament where the regions yeah. meant something and then the champions came out. And that's what you were saying with Toronto, Montreal, of course, of course, of course. Okay. One other question on that. Is there a bigger rivalry in hockey, a more historic rivalry in hockey than Toronto, Montreal? 
I think probably not, but I mean, there's some, it's hard for me to separate out my Canadian background and bias in that. I think, you know, the team, you know, I mean, you know, Pittsburgh, uh, I mean, sorry, uh, Philadelphia and New York, Boston, New York have some pretty great rivalries as well. Boston, Montreal. I, I think outside the original six, it's kind of hard to come up with rivalries that would kind of rival this. Remind us um, and the original with six, Shane. Montreal, uh, Toronto, Boston, uh, the New York Rangers, Chicago, Detroit. Did I get them all, or did I miss one there? Did you get I think Phil- Philadelphia it. wasn't in there. No, Philadelphia was one of the first, was one of the first expansion. Philadelphia and Buffalo, I think, were the first expansion teams. Chicago and Detroit were the original first six. Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. Far east. Yep. No kidding. That's yep. good. Fun. All right. Well, the Blackhawks are on hard times. We thought they were kind of a model franchise, but maybe they, not. They, well, yeah, they certainly they, they had a great run. All right, fellas. Good fun. We're going to do more hockey. Shane, go bone up, man. You got to get us geared up. There's nothing better in playoffs. There's no bigger step between regular season and playoffs than in hockey. It's great fun to dial in this time of year. All right, guys. That has been the first half. of. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics live every week. We're recording this week on Tuesday afternoon. We want to record on Tuesday afternoons, give you guys as fresh as we can. It'll be posted on Sirius XM Wednesday morning, replayed a few times on Sirius XM, makes the podcast uh, waves at some point Wednesday afternoon, and we're off and running. Rolling into the third quarter, another open mic, open sports quarter we've held off on talking about the favorite sport of this crowd this time of year (laughs) of course we're talking about horse racing no we're not talking about horse racing because we're going to do that in the next quarter we've got the drug scandal covered in our q4 interview what we have in front of us now is baseball gentlemen what about baseball would you like to discuss well i would like to jump in our baseball talk just quick observation after attending yankee stadium last sunday it is marvelous to go to a baseball game that's about 10% 10% full. All the inconveniences really? of driving to the Bronx are just disappeared. Oh, logistically. <laughs> well, Adi, I, went, I went the previous Sunday as before you, and yeah. I'm, I'm 54 years old. I've been to probably hundreds of Yankee games. I had never been to Monument Park before because it was too crowded. I just walked right in. That's right. Uh, Monument oh, Park oh, is oh, open. What is Monument Park? Eric, so, you can do the honors. Yeah, so it's where they have the plaques of all the great Yankees. And so, for those of you that don't know, in the old, old Yankee Stadium, not the old Yankee Stadium, the old, old one, it was actually in the outfield. That's right. Hit the ball. If you could hit the ball over 450 feet, the outfielders would have to dodge the actual monuments that sat there. Then the new old Yankee Stadium came. They brought in the fences to about 430, 420. Then the Monument Park was in the outfield, and now that we have the new Yankee Stadium, it's clearly not on the playing field. But if you go back to 1910, 20s, 30s, the Monument Park was on the field. There's a wonderful video of Bobby Mercer uh, misplaying a ball in center field and having to, like, walk around the monuments in the old uh, Yankee Stadium before he fielded it. Two 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 vis- two vis- two visuals come to mind. One is Shane. It was worth asking the question just to see the look on Shane's face as he started. <laughs> and the other was I get kind of a Game of Thrones vibe as I think about as I think about what you're describing. It reminds me of these I don't know some of these ancient or maybe it's a Roman yeah. a Roman thing. Anyway, Shane, your reaction to this? Well, I mean, I it, it does sound like this is the year for me to go back and watch some games at Yankee Stadium because I'll, of all years I'll be. 
surrounded by the least number of Yankees fans, right? Yeah, I mean, normally I'd have to say, in normal years, I'd have to sit right behind home plate to have no Yankees fans around me, right? <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Oh, man, that is definitely the case. But let me just say, one of the nice things about, um, obviously, the convenience of getting to a park that's not, not overcrowded is, was well appreciated. But uh, it's also particularly nice because you can really hear you can hear what's going on in the field. You can hear the, you can't right. make out the words, but you can hear what the, the players are talking to each other. You can say something, you can, you know, bellow out, uh, you know, Anduhar is hitting zero. So I, I made a, you know, a big chant, here comes zero, zero, zero. And everybody else in the state, in the area can hear you. And it, it's, uh, it feels very uh, camaraderie. It's a kind of a nice experience to be able to communicate and, and listen to each other. Um, and, so, and, Adi, and thanks to I'm entertained by one of your criteria for a good ballpark experience is being able to yell and be heard by a number of people. And I wonder, I wonder if you would get your full op, operatic treatment. I mean, cause you're kind of strive about singing because it's, you've got such a big voice. You got to be in the right setting. Does it contribute to your ability to communicate at a baseball stadium, your operatic? Uh, yeah, it's actually interesting um, to, to really push volume. It really hurts your voice. So I don't really want to do it that loud um, because you, you, to, to, to blast over the, the din of the crowd forces you to, to go beyond really what you should, because you really can't hear yourself. So I've, I've over the years been very careful not to yell at a but baseball. Let me tie, let me tie our first segment, by the way, to this, by the way, on COVID. So to get into Yankee stadium, you either had to have a negative COVID test within 24 hours or show you're double vaccinated and the right. two-week period passed. So I brought, in my case, a picture of my vaccine card. They absolutely checked it. They checked my ID to make sure it was me in yep. that vaccine card. And wow. so um, they obviously, and despite only being at 10%, as Adi said, and despite being outside, they're still enforcing that rule. And it's also prices have come down because of uh, way down availability. So I had good seats. I didn't pay a, an arm and a leg. One of the worst things about New York is that it is extremely expensive to buy um, good seats. Ext- and I don't mean the seats that that nobody goes to that, that Shane was referring to. Those are those started a thousand dollars. You can actually get into that section for about four fifty dollars uh, today. I didn't purchase those, but those are available. But my question for you all about baseball is we've been, we've been following the season as it's emerged. Um, which team do you think has the best record in all of baseball right now? I'm looking. Um, it's not fair. Well, I know, I I know the answer to this. Looking, yeah. I'm going to say you know, I mean, you'd, I mean, who are the candidates that you'd be thinking about before we... Well, we I know it's not. The, the Dodgers are third place in the no, West, so it's not You thought it would them. be the Dodgers. You thought it would be the Padres or... Uh, the Yankees. Uh, you, be the it would be the Yankees. Um, but uh, the... You, shocking there are two things that are quite shocking about the season oh shane i'll let you say it give the answer oh it's the boston red sox thank you for letting me give that answer because i do not expect <laughs> i know i know you, you know, a month you, from now to be able to say it again but but it's but what's really surprising to me at the baseball season is that they have the best record in baseball but and it's early in the season it's only 6 11 i mean in other words they're not right. There's usually one or two teams in early right. in the season that are 650 right. 675 yeah. even pushing 700 and, and everybody is compressed. There are a couple of teams that are doing extremely bad at the bottom, uh, Tigers, Rockies. But beyond those two teams at the bottom, it's amazing. There's, there's a, this could be a season where almost anybody's in contention. Yeah, Adi, I noticed, I talked about this a little bit last week on Wharton Moneyball, where at that point in time, 
the gap between the worst and best team in the, I think it was the NL East, was only three games in the loss column. Now it's six games in the loss column. In the AL East, it's only five games between the best. I mean, I'm not saying the Orioles are winning the division. I'm not saying the Red Sox are winning the division. All I'm commenting on is the Orioles are only five games back in the loss column. So I was just pointing out that there's so many, and I even point out the same that you did, except for the Tigers, who appear to be really bad, and the Rockies, who appear to be really bad. Any of these other teams could be between, let's call it a 450 and 550 win percentage. It wouldn't be that shocking. Yep. And, and, and to, for Audie's point, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think it's kind of, I would have, I feel like every year there's at least one team running away with their division by this time. And we're just not seeing that this nope. year. And whether that's just kind of a, a random thing that there's maybe a little bit more compression this year or whether that's some, you know, something more systemic, I don't know. But I, I also think it's kind of interesting that, like, you know, basically we've, we've got six com- very competitive division races even at this point. So that's that means so what probability the- do you put it that nobody's going to win 100 games this year now? Well, that's what I was about to, I was about to, well, let's answer your question first because I was going to bust some other information on that that might affect your answer. I can't answer because I'm looking at some stuff. that. I still think it's likely that one team will do it um, because 100 is not that incredible. 100 out of, 106, 100 out of 162 is. Uh, so, Adi, you would give me an even money bet on that. Now, a little an, higher than the Red Sox you'd are give now. Me an, um, you'd give me an even money I'd bet on that. I'd say it's at least 50 50 that somebody wins, maybe better, and wins 100 yeah. games. But I'll take the other 103, the I don't think. I'll take that bet. I, I just do the math. Again, I go to the math right now. You know, let's say we say, oh, it's going to be the Yankees. I think the Yankees are 18 and 16, right? Yeah. So they'd have to go um, 82 and 46. That's 82 out of 128. That's like 650, 670 ball, which they've played 500 ball essentially for 34 games. So I, I'm taking – I would take that bet, Adi. I would think – I would take the under on that. I would take it at a, at, a, at, a higher, at a lower bar than that, as a matter of fact, because our friends at Fangraphs currently project – what do you think they're projecting for the Dodgers, Yankees, and Padres? Same number for the Dodgers, Yankees, and Padres. What do you think that number is? 94. 93. I'd put it like 98 or something like that. They're on 93. They're on 93. Oh, wow. and it's okay. So usually these – I mean, the last couple of seasons, we've seen these numbers above 100 – yeah, 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 Pretty yeah. Early. But, but Kate, I want the I know, max I, of those. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I, know. I like that. I like that thinking. In fact, I think that's interesting. It's like no, okay, and I mean, just kind of following following Eric's logic. You know, it's it's believable. I don't think it's fifty fifty, but I think it's believable that one of these true teams is kind of rest of the season performance is more in the six fifty six sixty range, like the. Either the Dodgers or Yankees, if I had to narrow it down to pick an actual team, you just need one of those teams to kind of be in that range to sneak over 100. I don't think it's 50 50 for them to yeah. do that, but it's certainly, you know, but just to be clear, to just to be clear, Shane, it's another way to do the same math, which is besides the Yankees would have to play 640 ball, you're saying that had they played 640 ball for the whole season, they would have to be a 104 win team. So just to give you, like, they'd have to play the rest of the season like a 104-wit team. You didn't even predict they're going to win 104 at the beginning of the season. So why would you predict they're going to win 104, play like that for the rest of the season? So I, I don't get I'm going there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I think the strong argument would maybe be the Dodgers, where I, you know, I, mean, I can't remember what I predicted, but I probably would have had them maybe at, like, 104, 105 for the season. Hold on a second. We're going to answer this question. You've got to appeal immediately to baseline. How likely is it historically that a, a season went by without a 100-team win? And my intuition is 
that 100 team wins are way more common than non 100 team wins in a single season. In other words, there is seasons with without. Yeah, I would say for 80% of the seasons have a 100 win team. Maybe they've not. certainly been the last few. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know again. And, I feel, I feel like the last few years we've had some very bad teams, which has inflated, I guess, some of the win totals. I agree with Adi completely. I don't remember the last season there wasn't yeah. one team. And that's why Adi's point's important. Even if you predict three or four teams to be in the low to mid-90s, that doesn't mean that one of them won't get to 100. He's not saying which one. You just said yeah. anyone. Yeah. And yeah. that's... Yeah. I agree. That's, that's your saving grace, but I'm still taking the under. Okay, but let's say, <laughs> let's, let's say let's take it another step and say, okay, base, base rate is four out of five seasons produce a 100 or greater win team. How much information do you need about this particular season until you get to the 50-50 point on that? What, what, what counts as four-fifths evidence in the other direction from this year's season? Well, I'd like to look at the distribution of what the first whatever – games of those the those one in five years where it did not a team did not get to 100 wins what did that distribution of the winning percentages look like amongst the teams in those at this, right? and, this, at this of, stage at this, at this stage, stage yeah 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 well just to give you an idea here's one data point I, it doesn't tell me Adi, how many years there could be years with multiple of course over 127 seasons between 1892 and 2019 109 teams have won 100 or more games so it sounds so it's to, happened in roughly like almost exactly right in no well we know it's eight it's not because we don't know the number of seasons that 109 represents it's right. some number so Adi, you're too high at 80 because those would so have too. to be 109 so uniques which yes. is well, not. It was 154 games until 1960 or so so yeah well, that's a good point it. that's that's a fair point too that's it's a good the, point and that, and secondly i also think that things have gotten more spread out um so um, uh, Maddie just put up uh, 2014 was the last time it didn't happen. So that's uh, six years ago. Last year obviously didn't count. Um, um, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of sticking with my four out of five. I think that's in, the, in the, uh, the decent ballpark. But to answer the question about this year, look through the teams and ask which team can do it, right? You know, and the problem is with the Yankees just don't look good. And Boston is clearly overperforming there. So you'd say the Yankees, because you no, know, as, as soon as they, their hitting gets hot, how they're going to be? They're going to really start to roll. Um, and of course, the the uh, the Dodgers are on paper fantastic. So, but they have to play the Padres a lot, and they're also on paper fantastic. And, and the Yankees have to play the Red Sox a lot. That's a, I mean, back in the old days, you played eleven games against every team. Remember that? Yeah, how, and, now it's like 18, and I, 19 or right. And I think the big difference this year is less about how good the Yankees or the Dodgers look, but that the fact this is the first time maybe in the last few years that there, there's been not nearly as many bad teams within their same division. That's right. Right. I mean, I, I think that's really the kind of parity we're seeing. I mean, again, the Orioles will probably end up being the worst team in the AL East, but are not currently playing that badly and certainly not currently playing as badly as they've played in years past in the last few years and same thing you know with with uh with the nl west as well so guys one team you haven't mentioned yet are the mets they're just a little bit over 500 of course everybody's just a little bit over 500 but fan graphs has them projected out at 92 wins which is the fourth highest total and right there in the top tier so what are we seeing with the mets well <laughs> I mean, again, with every team, it's like, who's doing what? Like Linder's doing nothing at the plate. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like. DeGrom is doing his thing as usual. Oh, yeah, except he's I mean, injured now. He's injured. Oh. I don't know for how long he has a strain or 
or it was a precautionary. You never know with these, uh, with these um, uh, injury reports. Are they genuine? It takes a while to figure that out. I, I think this is going to be, a, uh, again, I think it's an exciting baseball season. Just like we talked, uh, Kay, we can't, what's good for the NBA goose is good for the gander. We just talked about parity and excitement in the NBA. Why can't we have the same parity and excitement in baseball, knowing that there could be a lot of teams? And again, once you get into the, especially I like the Shane Jensen coin flip, once you get into the baseball postseason, remember, you need four or five good pitchers to win a season over 162 games. Two pitchers are really good in the postseason. I don't care if you're the last team in, you can win that championship. And so I, I, I think it's definitely wide open in baseball. And, and most people were already crowning the Yankees or the Dodgers or the, maybe the Padres or something else. I, I think you better take that crown back and, and, get, and be ready to go to 10 different cities right now. Well, to make your, to make your point, I mean, the White Sox are right behind the, the Red Sox in terms of projections. They're in the next tier down. And we haven't talked about the White Sox. So they haven't been relevant in a long time. And they're not exactly an ownership that anybody's jealous of. But they're playing decent ball this year. The Athletics... Our friends, the A's, they're kind of every year they defy expectations and they're regular season darlings, the athletics. Exactly. All right, gentlemen, good little update on baseball. Good fun. Uh, We'll we'll continue to monitor that season as it evolves very closely. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a fourth quarter to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. As you know, over the last year, we've turned the fourth quarter into our interview segment. We are delighted to have two interviews in this quarter. The first is with an old friend of the show, Jeff Cedar. Jeff was just on a couple of weeks ago talking about Kentucky Derby. It's one of our annual traditions on this show that we all enjoy talking to Jeff Derby week. Well, we got more horse news this week, and so we thought we'd get who else other than Jeff Cedar to come back and talk to us. So Jeff is the founder, owner, and president of EQB, EQB Inc., longtime friend of the show. He's been in horses for over 40 years. He's a talent scout and buyer for young, unraced, thoroughbred racehorses. As you guys know, he's on the analytics side of things and on the frontier of horse racing analytics. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Wish it was different circumstances. We don't enjoy the controversies around horse racing in recent years, and it was with disappointment that we saw the drug test on Medina spirit. So we, you know, we have opinions, we have opinions, but they're kind of, you know, ill-formed distant opinions. We thought you might have uh, better informed opinions, Jeff, on what's going on. What's going on with Baffert's Barnes? What's going on with Medina spirit? What's going on with horse racing in general? Well, for one thing, you know, horse racing's always had a kind of a, a problem with drugs, lidocaine, steroids, Cobra venom in their their uh, hooves. They were using Viagra in uh, Italy, which made for stiff competition. <laughs> stimulants, cancer drugs, erythropoiesin, blood doping. You know the culture of drugs lacks enforcement. And then, as a result, some people say that's why we have so many more breakdowns than they do in Europe, mm-hmm. and uh, as which is a disgrace. And because uh, they run with the injuries and with the pain, and, and we have. You know, it was what five thousand a year or something ridiculous. If we had that, if we were hauling a pitcher off the mound twice a week and sending him to the uh, the morgue, it would be more of a reaction. So it's pretty. It's it's 
a serious problem. Uh, so Jeff, Jeff, hold on for one second. You said a couple of things that I need clarification on. You said worse problem here than in Europe. Why would Europe not have the same doping issues that the U.S. might have? I don't know. I mean, they claim because they test better. I, I think it's because they were on the grass more. They don't have as many, any, any, hardly as hardly any dirt tracks and it's much okay. more forgiving. Okay. And uh, the other that, question was, you said 5,000. We have, did you mean 5,000 horse deaths? Yes. 5,000 horse racing deaths a year? Something like that. Oh my think, gosh. That's crazy. I did not realize. Well, maybe I got the number wrong, but it was like, it was, it was a few every day in the United States. Okay. And I used to have the numbers memorized, but I think I blocked it out because it was too much. By the way, Medina Spirit, as you know, was cost a thousand dollars. Is tiny, and uh, you know, it was twelve to one. And but I, I was pretty sure it was a live long shot. I said so in writing on my website before the race. Yeah. All the the different analytics thing we weren't going to discuss today, but on the drug side of it, let me just jump right into they they, they found 21 picograms of beta-methasone, which is a corticosteroid you inject into the joint for inflammation and pain and pain in lame horses. And uh, that's more than double the limit. So if a picogram is a trillionth of a gram. So people are saying, well, it's ridiculous. It could be environmental contamination and it's not enough to mean anything. And why do they do this? And uh, well, but it's like failing a breathalyzer test. I think I sent this to you. I sent my, it, if it's the, the number of molecules of alcohol, the breathalyzer that set it off are not very many. They're not enough to get you drunk, but they indicate that you had all that alcohol in your system. Mm-hmm. Another example would be DNA. When you find DNA on the scene, you don't find enough to, uh, you know, it's a tiny, tiny, teeny, weeny, weeny, microscopic amount of something, but it proves the guy was there. Yeah, right. And that's the point of this test. It's not the test is not to show that there was enough drugs there to have an effect at the time of the race. It's to show that the drugs were there when during the period of time they weren't supposed to be there. So uh which was in 14 days. So he's a double the limit. So the idea that it's a teeny weeny weeny amount, it doesn't mean anything. It means you misunderstand the test. It was more than double. They spent millions of dollars with top veterinarians and researchers to figure out how could they, how much they should allow, how much they had to find to show that this horse had had a therapeutic dose of this drug in a prohibited time. And it was 10 picograms. And now they're a double. And the explanation is now that they, there was this drug was in a antifungicide thing they put because the horse had a rash on its rear end, and they were using a uh, an antifungal thing that had beta methadone. So that's the explanation they're giving now, instead of having it injected in the joint. Well, that here's the guy's the top of the sport, multi million dollar, the best veterinarians, the best of everything, and they didn't know. What was this horses are getting? The vets didn't know it would be a, a positive. And then the second thing is. If it's a positive, then the stuff got into the horse with enough. Enough of it got in there to have the anti-inflammatory effect, whether it's on the rash or on the joints. So it doesn't really matter how it got in there. Right. It was in there at that level inside the horse. And uh, the, the rule of strict liability, the trainer is responsible, period, no matter how it got in there. Right, so it, right. It's looking bad. 
I, I would assume I, I would assume with these medical like with these detection experiments to actually detect these various chemicals that there's standard errors in that the the observation. So I mean you can't necessarily you know I mean I assume that the kind of statistical pushback on this would be that you can't get you know sure this was detected at twice the kind of level of proportion in the tests that you did but i mean there's variance in these tests and so you can't necessarily say well therefore it was obviously present so jeff how much this was double more than double the limit so so jeff that was right but again that what's the standard error on observing that 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 chemical wouldn't if the standard error was that much they wouldn't have it uh, 10 picogram limit they did the research to know what kind of a what kind of a level would would, would be real and, and uh just you know just defendable statistically and it was 10 not 20 but but hold on there's also a split sample here we're going to get another result right. and that's going to that's going to take care of any statistical arguments it's way beyond these- the standard aeroflex the test on this one i think though that the, the the paradigm here where we test after the fact that drugs is totally uh, inadequate. They're not going to catch these guys. And there's going to, they're always going to be 4 million ways to wiggle out of it or argue against. We need detectives. We need ordinary enforcement work. That's how they, FBI caught 27 people and it made big headlines for drugging, including the trainer, Jason Service, who trained the, the 2019 Kentucky Derby winner. That's how they caught those guys. Not with drug tests. They had informants and uh, spies and uh, oh, really? detective okay. work. That's what we need to do because otherwise we always end up with it. So Jeff, could well, you guess- it was maybe like when Gamine, who was a champion Philly, had lidocaine. You know, they said, well, it was a Jimson weed or not with him. It was a it was a lidocaine patch on his broom when right. Justify wins the triple crown and he comes up positive. They say, well, it was Jimson weed in the hay. You know, it's just impossible. So, so, Jeff, so Jeff, that can- one, oh, that one, the Justify and the and the California Racing Board. That looked so shady, even to non-informed people like ourselves. Justify, it looked like we need this horse to go on. We want Baffert to have this Kentucky Derby candidate. It looks so dirty. And then they, you know, the horse gets, ends up selling for $60 million. And I mean, when there's that much money rolling around, these boards are going to have ways of making it happen, right? Because if they had shut that down, that's 60 million that's money. 60 well, million there's also dollars. the law and all, you know, the administrative law. If Jimson weed could have been in the hay, they didn't prove Jimson weed was in the hay that he ate, but it was possible. So that, you know. So Jeff, let me ask you two, two related questions. The first one is, can you give our listeners a sense of what betamethasone, besides an anti-inflammatory, like would it make the horse just heal faster run faster like what would be the impact suppose a horse had a hundred mil um, you know uh milligrams of this or whatever they live with racehorses and train racehorses long enough you realize that the number one thing that slows them down is a 400 kinds of arthritis it's pain it's it hurts so they they don't run as fast all right well that would do it anything that takes away pain has a huge difference, so that it, that's what this illegal. And they, well, before they had such sophisticated testing, it was cocaine, and it made an enormous difference. So let me ask one other. So Jeff, let me ask one other related question, um, which is more of a let's call it a Bob Baffert effect. And let's forget the money side. If you just stripped off the name Bob Baffert and you said there was a trainer who's had dozens of incidents over the last few years, 
And then 30. you say, well, of course, everyone could have a false negative, but not or false positive, but not 30 of them. Why isn't that part of the statistical argument that's done? In other words, this is not the first time out of our it's the 30th. And so how is that not relevant to the argument? Or maybe it is among experts like yourself. Well, is when the, in the rape trial, when uh, like 20 more girls walk into that, they're going to testify <laughs> and it's, it's treated as what prejudicial because it has nothing to do with this particular case. You know, yeah, it's, it's uh, I suppose logically it's a, a damning uh, fact, but I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really go to the proof of a guilt it doesn't in this go particular to proof, case. But just but 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 if you, if that's not the standard, if it's just like what is our opinion, what's the probability this thing happened? You, that's what you rely on, and it's and and if you give me ask me the probability given those kinds of stats, and you but couple with the fact on. that we know right. doping's been a problem in horse racing, and this is the top trainer in horse racing. It's Pat Forty made this point in, a, in an SI article today. It's not unlike Lance Armstrong. If the guy's winning six yellow jerseys, six Tour de France's at the peak of the doping crisis in bicycling, what are the chances that guy is doping? It feels like the exact same argument here. What are the chances? So I agree. I don't have the goods. We don't know. We didn't. We don't have a picture of the trainer injecting the thing. But all the context and all the history, I'd put the probability at like 0.99. Well, am I, I Jeff, am, I, am I wrong? I don't know because I know Bob Baffert. I find it hard to believe he would do something so stupid. Uh, and it, he's so good at what he does. We wouldn't need this. But it's, yeah, the evidence is pretty damning, I would think. And I think most of the defenses that are being offered are, are uh, you know, specious. You would think yeah. that they would come up. Now they finally got one that might make sense, but I don't about the uh, fungicide, anti-fungicide that's administered. But even so, I mean, I don't know that that gets him off the hook because the drug got into the horse and he's supposed to, he's responsible. Right. Uh, right. Thank God I mean, the it, feds are taking it over. July 1st, new law, new, not going to be this patchwork of state stuff. The feds are going to be taking over this legal drug enforcement. And I, I'm hoping that with those resources, they'll do it, the detective work and not just drug testing. Well, <laughs> since... since- uh, that we're talking about kind of, a, I guess, a new legal standard. Can I kind of ask a question? Like, so you brought up this particular chemical. It's illegal because it's a painkiller, basically? It's because it's an anti-inflammatory, which takes away the pain. If your joint is damaged and it's inflamed yeah. and it hurts. And so if you can treat the inflammation with an anti-inflammatory, you can run. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had arthritis bad enough to have your shoulder or your knee injected. But I, I have, I can tell you, it's the difference between, you know, roadkill and fresh meat, you know. And, but, but, and, and, but the reason that's illegal, because, I mean, most, I mean, you know, Cade made the analogy to Lance Armstrong, or, I mean, we think about oh, steroids. They used to inject it right are... in the joints of horses before they went to, you know, the morning okay. of the race. That's right. And then they, they're right. feeling no pain. Well, right. But, again... Not feeling pain, like a painkiller is not inherently in most sports. That's not what we actually consider doping, right? We consider in horse, like steroids. In horse racing, that's doping. I'm telling you, and it's there, and there it, no but, free but we, agents. No, I guess I'm don't. asking. I'm asking why is it considered doping? Because the health consequences for the horse if they run, uh, well, first, you know, uh, kind of under are, under. They run damaged, and they may break down and have and die. 
But the racing consequences are they will run faster and farther than they would without it. It is well, right. I, I, I guess answer. I just, you know, I, that's something that's a little bit unique to race horsing. Uh, horse yeah, racing, it is. Right? I mean, a lot of people, you know, baseball players you know are allowed to take ibuprofen. A great trainer and, a, and an average trainer is the great trainer spots and treats and also prevents minor lamenesses. After 40 years and having won every, every major race there is, I've been a part of winning. And, you know, I've got, I've got triple crown winner. The difference is in a good trainer and an average trainer is that it's very subtle lamenesses are really the difference between winning big races and not. Mm-hmm. And so, so they, are, 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 any, very, are, are there kind of, are, so what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is Jeff saying, look, you could dope them and then you don't got to worry about the minor lamenesses. You don't have to pay attention even because you just, it covers up everything or if you don't have dope, you have to be in tune with the horse. You have to be astute enough to know when something's a little bit lame so you know how to exercise them differently. Is that, is that right, Jeff? Yeah. In terms of the analytical thing, what I did when I was actually running a barn years ago, we invented the first onboard accurate teeny-weeny heart rate meter. So when the horses went out to the track versus their right lead versus their left lead, their right diagonal versus left diagonal, we could see whether the heart rates were the same. And if they were a little lame, there would be an elevated heart rate on one, one side, right-handed versus left-handed. And, mm-hmm. they, uh, and we knew we had a problem. And we wouldn't work fast that day because we'd just make it worse. Uh-huh. So there's nobody, I don't know, hard, anybody, hardly anybody who uses that. But they have other ways. Some of these guys, they have, you know, they developed an eye so they can see the subtle changes in the gait and the walk and stuff. And it's, that's the heart of, uh, it's the heart of winning big races. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Listen, Jeff, thank you for joining us again. And on short notice, appreciate your thoughts on this. We always love talking to you. We wish you the best with what you're doing. We'll look forward to talking to you again down the road. Thank you very much. I hope it was a little different perspective. On Absolutely. Jeff Cedar, founder, owner, and president of EQB Inc. Longtime horse guy, horse scout, talent scout, and buyer um, up here in Pennsylvania. Okay. For the second half of the fourth quarter, we have a second interview guest we are delighted to welcome back to the show for the umpteenth time we've lost track of the times that we talked to neil Payne. neil is senior writer at 538 and if you're a longtime listener you may remember when he was in person in the basement of some building on campus when we first got this thing started neil came along it was even in the dawn of 538 neil if i'm not mistaken we we're born about the same time as 538 you went there in the first tranche of hires been doing great work since Delighted, as always, to have you here. And you pulled the full crowd out here. Everybody <laughs> want to talk to Neil Payne. So Audie's here. Shane is here. Eric is here. And we'd love to hear what is on your mind. You've been kicking articles out. I don't know how you do it. Interesting article after interesting article. Everybody's probably got one. I, I think you wrote one that I want to hear you talk about, just because I like to poke fun at these guys. Something about the Yankees not being. No, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Is. Uh, well, first he of all, he dragged on the Yankees. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I'm I am delighted to be back. Uh, delighted to be here for the Zoom edition. I listen to you guys just about every week, so uh, happy to be a part of it. And yeah, just uh, any chance that I had the opportunity to. Uh, not trash the Yankees, just talk about them a little bit. Uh, yes. And, and they're Point out uh, their flaws, their flaws, you know, is constructive criticism. Uh, yes. I'm sure Adi, as a Yankee fan, you appreciated that. Um, but it was basically about some of these categories that are kind of holding the Yankees back from uh, reaching their full potential 
particularly when it comes to offense, uh, I, I sort of found these fundamental categories and it was a little, you know, uh, I, I came up with a little combined ranking, not super scientific, but this idea of putting together things that I thought of that might be associated with fundamental baseball. So for instance, the Yankees, at least at the time I wrote the story, worst base running team in baseball. They had uh, committed the most outs on the base as a percentage of their base runners of any team. Okay, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Give yeah. me a sense of mm-hmm. how often does that happen in baseball? A base running mistake essentially creates an out. How often does that happen in baseball? Well, uh, their rate per base runner was 4.6%. So outs on the base okay. are generally, and, and um, I believe this includes like if you get thrown out, you know, between the bases, it might mm-hmm. include stolen, uh, caught stealing, but yep. the Yankees are actually a pretty good base stealing team in terms of their just percentage. They, they um, uh, so that didn't count against them. It was mostly getting thrown out. Uh, and, and when you combine that with the fact that they also had the lowest rate of taking extra bases of any team and that uh, only 33% percent of the time when they had an opportunity to take the extra base did they did they do it uh that is the building block of why they were the worst How do you base get running both team. of those things wrong it seems to right me like yeah you throw, yeah okay interesting. right you would th- you would expect them to be sort of inversely correlated right yes. like if you were super aggressive then right. yeah you'd try to take extra bases but you'd also have a lot of mistakes or if you were super conservative then yeah you wouldn't take as many extra bases but you also wouldn't get as many out so i think it's a testament to really their commitment uh to <laughs> on the base pass that they were ranked so last in both. What do you guys, how do you guys interpret that? I mean, y'all are Yankees watchers. This is the kind of, this is like a little league. This is a little league thing. You see guys get thrown on the bases all the time because they're sloppy or they're are poorly trained or whatever. Why, why are the Yankees worse at this than the usual team? What's your attribution? Well, I think Eric. the first question is, um, Neil, do we know how many of these are actually mistakes in the following sense? You know, let's say there's, you got a player who's got a certain speed you've got a ball at a certain position, you could say, hey, the expected number of runs by going for it, it actually makes sense to do. Is there, let me ask you, the, the direct question is, are we at the stage of analytics now where we can actually score whether these are mistakes or not? Well, yeah, in that overall base running category, which is itself kind of averaged together the numbers from baseball reference and fan graphs, they actually do take into account the uh, the location where the fielder gets the ball uh, and, and where the runner is, uh, it, at least what base they started on. Um, uh, just in terms of the pure extra base stat, it's more of just like, a, here's the situation, here's how often we expect someone to take an extra base, and it sort of compares you to that base rate. So it is a slightly different calculation, but in, in a certain way, it's actually kind of looking at the same thing from multiple different directions, which is, I think, kind of interesting that they also were last in, in something that is more fine-grained and takes into account what you were saying. I'm just hoping it's bad coaching. Well, you're hoping <laughs> or, or, I mean, it's personnel that are, I mean, you know, most Yan- the Yankees offense is not built around players on base, right? That's not, that's not, that's kind of an accidental outcome of the Yankee offense. You're supposed they're to just supposed, strike out or hit a home to... run. They're not accustomed right. to stopping out there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, I mean, you either get to go around all the bases or you, you know, <laughs> I guess walk to first. They do do a lot of walking. So here's first. here's the question about the Yankees that disappoints me, considering I'm, I love the Yankees and I love analytics. One of the great messages of, of baseball analytics has been that fielding matters. It does. And, and you've got to invest in it, particularly at the key positions, center field, catcher, shortstop. Yankees have three people playing these three positions badly. Mm-hmm. Sanchez behind the plate. Hicks doesn't field well in center field. And Torres is a second base. Torres is a second baseman stuck at shortstop and not doing a good job. 
And I just I, what 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 I found troubling is they have 30 people on their analytics staff, et cetera. They have invest so highly in this. Well, how do you miss this? I mean, well, I'll leave it out there to Neil. What do you think? No, Shane, uh, Shane, go ahead. You well, I just want to jump in that like to the extent I mean, again, you, I mean, if they could just add fielding for free. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, it'd be senseless not to do it. But, you know, to the extent that this is, you know, every single baseball player is some, you know, you know, has a multivariate kind of skill set. Usually, I think offensive ability is kind of ne- slightly negatively correlated, if anything, with def- defensive is, ability. And so it would, have, it would have to be an active sacrifice of something else to be, get better at fielding. But I guess what my point is, is that the team looks awful out there. They've constructed a team that's supposed to win. Do they not take into account fielding? Are they getting? Are they? Are they just so vastly underperforming on the hitting side that we're we, we're we're so we, we see the bad fielding because they're hitting one twenty? And I and- I think that's exactly right, and I think that goes to what you were saying, Shane. Is that like if this team is hitting really well, which is sort of the basis of how it's been, the team has been constructed and kind of how it's been constructed for this era of Yankee baseball um, then, and they've had regular season success, certainly with that, uh, that type of um, team, then yeah, maybe the defense doesn't matter as much. I think it's more glaring when uh, like you were saying, there's this push and pull between offense and defense. And it's like, well, if you're not going to hit, you'd better have good fielders. Uh, If you have bad fielders who also can't hit, that's when you start running into trouble uh, as a team. Although they have been winning more recently. And I, you know, I think uh, some of the guys have been playing below their actual talent level. And and this is the type of team that it seems like, you know, maybe there's not, I, I, I always struggle with this in terms of, is there something to this where like, it does seem like a team that is capable of looking amazing, perhaps against, teams like the Orioles and team, you know, teams that you face a lot during the regular season and you can beat those teams. But then when you get into a playoff series against a better team with better pitching, pitching that can strike you out, uh, then, it, you know, there, there might be a reason why they've struggled in those situations in recent years, but it could also be a total crapshoot as we often say about the baseball playoffs. That's one of the fun things about sports is you go through these long stories and long narratives. And at the end you have to say, yeah, we don't really know. It could be chance. Neil, one of the pleasures of talking to you is that you can go so many different directions in sports. So even in just your recent articles, you wrote another one quite different from the Yankees article about the NFL draft and the meaningless of the draft grades. You did something that's been needed for years and it's never done. And this is the thing that 538 does. You brought data to the conversation. So can you tell us what you found when you went to look at NFL grade draft grades? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, I felt like this was near and dear to your heart in particular, Cade, because it uh, runs kind of in parallel to your research about uh, actual people who are NFL decision makers and their uh, lack of repeated ability to kind of get more value than average out of the draft. Well, you know, I kind of went into it asking, like, we, we always get these draft grades. Are they correlated with? anything resembling team success or drafting success down the line. And what I did was I looked at whether they predict how good a team will be, which a very, you know, casting a very wide net. I didn't expect to kind of find anything there. And the correlation is very low next to non-existent between teams that draft really well, uh, according to these, you know, snap judgment grades the day after the draft or whenever it is and, and how well they do, you know, three, five, seven years down the line, all of those time periods, there's basically yeah. nothing there. Okay, Neil, but you started to kind of discount it because it's a, it's a tough 
performance measure because it's big. I mean, wins, right? Like 16 games a year. It's tough. On the other hand, Neil, that's exactly what fans are thinking and talking about on draft night. They're like, they're projecting this pick into now we're going to win 11 games and make the playoffs. That's exactly the translation they make. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that in the mind of a lot of fans, yeah, you do kind of think, Hey, I got that eight draft grade from Mel Kuyper or whatever, you know, we're, we're really headed for, for a Super Bowl. Um, but even if you're, you know, I, 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 as I said in the story that there's a lot of things that go into building a team beyond the draft, uh, that, that, you know, are not going to be picked up in these draft grades. So, you know, why would we necessarily expect it to have a great relationship? I think more telling and, and a, maybe a better test of it is do they explain uh, production from the draft class that got a certain grade uh, above and beyond just knowing the average output from players drafted in a certain slot? And the answer to that is also basically no there's there's a little bit more of a relationship there than just looking at like how well the team is uh doing down the line but it's not that much more and i think that's a greater indictment of these grades because this is the entire purpose of them right is to be able to tell us uh, especially after accounting for the fact that you know that the number one overall pick is going to be better than the number 10 and better than the number 30 and so on and so forth is like are they adding value beyond that and uh, it's it's not especially surprising that they aren't really doing that because again i go back to your research and the stuff that i've kind of looked into also off of that is that the people who are the best talent evaluators in the world who work for NFL teams are struggling with this, struggling to repeatedly get more value than, than you would expect from just the long-term average at a given pick slot. So why would we expect people that are outside the NFL that presumably if they were better than the people in the NFL, they would actually be in the NFL. Why would we expect them to be any better? I mean, it's just a really tough thing to predict down the line. Mayock, Mayock went and gave it a whirl. How's he, he did, doing? yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the other interesting thing, and I should give credit um, uh, that a guy named Benjamin Robinson from uh, Football Outsiders, he has also looked at this, and he actually looked at individual graders. It was over sort of a shorter time period than I looked at, but he tried to find whether there was any correlation between, you know, like maybe in aggregate, the draft graders are not right. necessarily doing that great of a job, but maybe there are some people that stand out. Right. And of course, the answer that is not that much there's uh, there, there there are there's maybe like one person across all of the um the the draft graders that he looked at that might be vaguely statistically uh significantly yeah. different from from no effect it's but it's-, it's very tough i mean that's uh, and that's something that you found also it's kind of this paradox of skill where you know, the, the, the better that everyone is at drafting and the better that everyone is at sort of evaluating prospects, the more that any variance from the long-term average is just due to luck, not skill. Right. So that's Michael, Michael Mobison, Paradox of Skill. Always love a Mobison reference in here. Hey, one nuance in that article that I got a kick out of. You, got, you had so many good things in there. It didn't get quite the profile it deserved. Those mock grades were actually quite highly related to draft order is kind yeah. of my reading, right? Cause what you did, once you discounted out the expected performance for a player, it was much lower correlation with the, with the mock rates. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of what they're kind of doing is just, you could look at uh, the, the, aggregated talent expected from your collection of picks and give a draft grade off of that. And you would get like most of the way there, you know, uh, there, there are some things that are being added by like, 
you know, trying to figure out beyond um, uh, where someone was picked, but it's yep. like very small effect. Yep. It's yep. a little surprising that there's so little effect here because football draft takes place after college. These, these players are going right to the pros. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've, we've looked at baseball forecasting, there's nothing in the draft that's so far away for, from performance. But one of the things that we did was we look at top prospect rankings. So they're ready in the minors. And they're already out there and you're trying to forecast how good these players are going to be. And it turns out that it's still a hash in baseball. It's still hard wow. to do. So there's something mystical about all this. It's, it's, it's something that we, I think, analysts would love to trick, try to figure out a way to solve it. But it's, so, it's certainly unsolved at this point. Well, the mystical part that I'm obsessed with is always that, you know, the, the teams, the best players kind of go to the worst teams. So, I mean, we, we, we evaluate these drafts retrospectively and when we say oh they they didn't pick well because these players ended up not being that good but did they end up not being that good because they actually were misappraised at the draft or they just weren't developed properly by an already kind of below Which average organization and that, that, that confounding i think is part of the kind of mystique of the draft a hundred percent so neil is zach wilson going to turn out speaking up what do you think <laughs> well Number two yeah we were talking about uh, on on our podcast uh, hot takedown a few weeks ago that the research that showed that the number one overall pick, so Trevor Lawrence, has a great track record of beating other quarterbacks taken uh, in the first like handful of rounds of the draft. But for everyone else, even the number two pick uh, and in that range, it's fifty fifty as as to whether they'll beat their peers essentially uh, just among mm-hmm. quarterbacks. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I think Pro Football Focus has done something really interesting that I think gets at what you guys are talking about too, where they try to quantify the supporting cast that a quarterback is kind of walking into Mm -hmm. and project off of that because it is kind of this perverse situation where because the best uh, prospects are going into the worst situations in mm-hmm. theory uh, they're they're being kind of set up to fail and almost like the sweet spot is you want to be like a Trey Lance right you want to go into a situation where you have some measure of talent around you now maybe Trevor Lawrence is so good that it won't matter and certainly the the track record of number one overall drafted quarterbacks is pretty good you know they tend to be I don't know if it's just they're easier to kind of identify or they uh, that particular position and that particular tier of player well, at that position transcends bad teammates. But well, Neil, certainly, yeah, it, it, after that, it's kind of a crapshoot. Well, if you think about the kind of, I'll call it the inverted U-shape, if you're a really good team, you probably don't need a good quarterback. Or even if you did, you can't trade up far enough to get it. The 49ers were, they were almost the sweet spot because they were at 12. 12 can get you to three. In other words, you can't give every, you can't get from 28 to three without giving up every player on your team that's an all pro and three number ones. And then you wouldn't be a good team anymore. So it's almost like we had this perfect storm where 12 can get you to three and three can do really I mean that's the way I always viewed the 49ers trading up to get Trey Lance do you see it differently or were they like right in this sweet spot no I totally agree I mean I think that that is almost like the canonical example of that from this draft is and and maybe you could also like there might be a Mac Jones Patriots type of uh situation with that also where you're sort of Bears Bears Shane seems excited about that oh yeah I'm I'm officially hyped for Mac Jones I agree with Kate Bears and Fields was another great example where they could get from 20 to 11 they couldn't get to three but they could get to 11 and then I think your point Neil is you know we have no evidence to suggest that Justin Fields might be the best of all of them. We don't know. No, no, but you're saying two things that seem to be a little contradictory. So we know that Trevor Lawrence at number one is likely to be 
better than others in the say that it, that was the point. But once you're not number one, you're not necessarily likely to be better than the others. So why don't you stay at 12 and take whoever? Well, because you might you might not get any of those five. That, oh, really, you're not going to get any. What, what we're really talking about is the match. And we're talking about the, the benefit to a quarterback of a, it's kind of set aside the draft value, the benefit of a quarterback of being drafted by a team that moved up to get you because you're just with the better supporting cast. That's broadly the story we're telling. So you're kind of happy for Justin Fields. Cause he, I mean, you got to feel for Zach Wilson before he even walks out on the practice field. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I know he's looking at the Sam regime. Darnold and feeling yeah. like, Oh I mean, my they, God. He doesn't have to deal with that coach at least, but right. still that was just rough going. And I mean, they might've ruined Sam Darnold and maybe they didn't. It's going to be one of the great questions for, you know, for us to always argue about, but, but um, it's, we're going to get it again. Here we go. Experiment again. All right, guys, that's all the time we have sadly with Neil, but so much fun. Gave us a little baseball, a little football. That's kind of satisfying the whole crowd here. Much appreciated. Neil, keep up the great work. Come back and see us soon, please. Absolutely. Thanks for having me and uh, excited uh, for you guys. Are you going back to the to the studio in person at some point or is this just open permanent question? Zoom? It's an open question. We don't know. Um, we've become a little more dispersed and it turns out we have uh, it's easier for all of us to get together every week this way. So we've got a, these are some of the logistics we have to figure out. Neil Payne, senior writer for 538. One of our longest friends of the show. Always glad to have him around. Guys, that has been another two hours on Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. This has been Cade Massey. Many thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man, to Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man, and to all you guys for listening. We'll be back and do it again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>